I want you to start off with the book of Mark, chapter 3. And I'd invite you to bring your Bibles. I do this every week, but I've also told you about the secret stash of Bibles in the back. And so if you forget, you can always just pick one up and have it there ready to go um, when we get to the scripture part. We're going to stay in Mark 3. I'm going to turn in a minute to a different place, but just keep your finger in Mark 3 because we're going to be going through this passage in a little bit more detail than normal today. So this is what the word of God says, starting in verse 7, Mark chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus went out to the lake, hey, hey, the lake, to be with his disciples, and a large crowd followed him. They came from all over Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Edomia, from east of the Jordan River, and even from as far north as Tyre and Sidon. The news about his miracles had spread far and wide, and vast numbers of people came to see him. Jesus instructed his disciples to have a boat ready so the crowd would not crush him. Now skip down with me to verse 13. Afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain and called out the ones he wanted to go with him, and they came to him. Then he appointed 12 of them and called them his apostles. They were to accompany him, and he would send them out to preach, giving them authority to cast out demons. And then they talk about the 12 he chose, but we won't. I won't bore you with the list. I'm just going to tell you about who it was. So this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. As you know, my um, opening sermon series is a series on seconds. And we talked about seconds as a, a little bit of time and the second chance. And then we talked about second hand last week. And this week we're going to go on to another great and worthy second. And I want to begin by asking you what you think is the, and I really want responses, the number one tourist destination in our state, the state of Texas. Just give me some things people might say. Now, don't cheat. Don't cheat. We'll, we'll get there. You're right. You're right, actually. But what are some of the things you would think? Big Ben. Yeah. The Riverwalk. Yes. The Alamo. Uh-huh. McDonald Observatory. Yes. My dad would be happy if that was true. <laughs> Talked about him last week. He actually, um, he's so sweet. He got, they give you a souvenir picture. We were out at the McDonald Observatory. For those of y'all, I talked about my dad being an evangelist for this group. We were out there um, yesterday, and they give you a picture. They give each board member a picture. And he gave me the picture he got, and he said, this is for your church. And I said, oh, Dad, now we have a picture of Saturn. I'm sure that <laughs> But I'll use it someday. He, it was just so sweet. This is for your church. So if y'all can think of a place to put Saturn, we'll... It's, there's, it's a cool picture for a reason, but that's going to be another sermon about why it's a cool picture. It's a different point of view. What are some other places? Where? Padre Island. Yes, people come from all over to go to Padre Island. What are some other ones? Hmm? The Capitol. Yes, thank you very much. Local stuff. What about, huh? NASA. Sure. I mean, we go there. When we visit Houston, we try to go to NASA. There's... What does Dallas have? We need to think of a Dallas thing. Go see a Cowboys game, right? Go see a Cowboys. And what? Uh, okay. Oh, Paisano Pete. Have any of y'all ever seen Paisano Pete, that giant roadrunner in, like, Fort Stockton? Yeah? That should be up there. But really, the number one is the one that you mentioned. The number one tourist destination by volume in our state is, in fact, the outlet mall in San Marcos. It beats out the Capitol and the Alamo and Paisano Pete, the giant roadrunner, and South Padre Island. 
It's crazy. And I, I actually know that this is true because I used to live 15 minutes south of the outlet mall. Oh, what a glorious time that was for our family. How happy Kevin is that I don't live there anymore. Um, one Sunday, in the, or one, I guess it was a Friday. It was Black, Fri- Black Friday, right? Maybe it was that Saturday because I would never be fool enough to go out on Black Friday. But that Saturday, we, I wanted to take my sister-in-law up to the outlet mall. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. And we drove up there. They have scads of parking spaces there. But we circled the lot for 30 minutes. We weren't being picky, y'all. We just, whatever was open, we would have taken it. There was nothing. That's how frantic people are for seconds and irregulars. Because that is the business that the outlet mall is in, is in seconds and irregulars. One of my favorites was Pottery Barn. Guys, just let your eyes glaze over for a minute. But in Pottery Barn, I can't afford real Pottery Barn things, but I can afford outlet stuff. And if you're willing, they have these giant boxes, giant And they've just tossed in all this stuff, and you can get it for, like, six bucks. And so I brought home some things that I'm like, I could use that someday. I never use it. But I also got got these really cool silk curtains. They were, like, $100 a panel. I got them for, for Anna's room for six bucks each. Heck, yeah. I love, I love seconds and irregulars. I love them. I'm a big fan of Goodwill. I'm a big fan of the outlet mall. I'm a big fan of wherever you can get cool stuff that might have a little bit of an imperfection. And one thing I like about Christianity is it's always been a kind of seconds and irregulars kind of a religion. Now, that's where I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, Paul is going to tell the church how they're kind of a seconds and irregulars group. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy, all those good, you know, first-rate kind of things. And then God, when God called you, instead, God chose things that the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing that which the world considers important. I wanted to paraphrase that for y'all. If we were going to paraphrase that in today's language, this is what I think it would sound like. Do you think you're all that? Remember where you came from, buried in a rack of cast-offs at Goodwill. But God bought you, and your shabby imperfections turned out to be more impressive than a suit from Neiman Marcus. In fact, God has used many of you Goodwill cast-offs to show up designer duds, and that gave him pleasure. Jesus was a Goodwill kind of a guy. He, he was. I mean, just look at the folks he called. Last week we talked about how there was rabble following Jesus. Well, what's the characteristic of rabble? (laughs) They're weirdos. They're kooky. They're different. They were, these were the kind of people that Jesus chose to eat with. How many of y'all would like, be like, hey, Leslie, come on over and let's have dinner. Isn't that Leslie? Isn't that right? Yeah. Would y'all invite him over for dinner? It would be interesting, right? This is the kind of people Jesus invited over for dinner, put into leadership, um, taught all the time, invited into the inner circle. Now, even though this is only the third chapter of the book of Mark, already there is what following Jesus? That's where I'm going to ask you. A crowd, not just a little gathering, but a crowd of people. And if you look look at this verse here at 7, Where had this crowd come from? Well, they come from all over Galilee. 
That would be like all over the lake country, we could say, right? Like we could say they came from all around the lake to hear Jesus. But they had also come from Judea, which is nearby. But, I mean, you'd have to journey. It would be like coming up from San Antonio or coming from Dallas. They came from Jerusalem, which was the capital. But that was the capital not just of the state but of the nation. Granted, it's a smaller nation, but they were still there. So you have the capital dwellers. Idumea, which is Edom, so they came from another nation, and they came from east of the Jordan River and as far north as Tyre and Sidon, so they were coming from neighboring countries too, from all within the country and then these neighboring countries. So imagine what that would look like, because you have your slick urbanites, right? They're in there with all the politicians from the capital and all the priests and all the, you know, the bishop came on down, maybe, we can imagine, mixed in with the rednecks. The farmers, the people who heard Jesus was coming through and got off the tractor and came by. And the folks who were working construction and said, hey, let's knock off early today because we're going to go hear Jesus. You know, so this, there's some people in there that, whoo, a little stinky. And then there's people who are all slick and nice, right? And then down come some Canadians. Hey, what's up? Uh, what's up, eh? You know, and they're like, okay, you hosers. And they join in the crowd, right? And then there's some people who come up from Mexico to hear. So there's all these different people gathered around to hear Jesus because of how powerful they hear he is. And Jesus is on a lake. He's teaching on a boat because there's so many of them that it's actually dangerous kind of. And so he's out on a boat. And as he gets ready to leave in verse 13, he's going to a mountain. I think this is a group that lives on a lake but likes mountains because y'all are always vacationing in the mountains, right? Right? I mean, I've never, I haven't heard any of y'all say, I'm going to the beach. You're all like, I'm headed for the mountains. Well, you'd, you'd like this. Mountains are significant places. Not only did people feel closer to God just because they're up higher, but they're significant in salvation history. So think about when Abraham went to fulfill God's request to sacrifice Isaac, where did he go? A mountain. So it was on a mountain God said, you are truly the man of faith I want to build a nation out of on a mountain. When God called Moses, he was tending sheep, but where? On a mountainside. And God called him and said, my people are in chains. It's your job with my help to get them free. And when they were free and they, they're free now and they're going to go receive God's law and make a covenant with God, where does God give them the Ten Commandments? On a mountain. You're getting the idea, right? And when Elijah has a giant showdown with the prophets of Baal, and God has proved to be whoa powerful, and he basically says Baal is on the toilet. Yes, he says that. Um, where did that happen? On a mountain, right? When Elijah's worn out from the journey, and he feels like I'm the only prophet of God, and I can't do this anymore, where does God renew him? On a mountain, George, yes. So do you think that when Jesus leaves the lake for a mountain, people knew not only is he just tired of the lake, something's about to happen, something significant. If Jesus makes a point of going up to a mountain to do this next thing, something's going to happen. And he begins, before he goes, he starts calling people. You, 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 you. Now imagine you're in this huge crowd with the Canadians and the slick gap people and the rednecks, and all of a sudden you hear your name. How do you feel? I mean, is it like you just won the lottery or something? Even though you haven't been playing, you just won it? Or do you look around? I wonder if these people looked around and thought, now, hold on a minute. Hold the phone. Did I just, 
when or am I being called to the principal's office? Because it was kind of a strange group of people. Now, I had this experience with my daughter, Anna. We were up here at Christmas time. My dad lives up here, and we were visiting him, and in honor of Christmas, we went to Flores Mexican Restaurant. You know, nothing like celebrating the season at Flores. And so we were done, and we were coming out, and guess who was coming in? Santa. Santa Claus was coming into Flores Mexican Restaurant. And the girls were like, Santa! And because you could tell it was him. He had on the hat and he had, of course, his beard. But when he's when he's here in Texas, he puts on his boots and his jeans and suspenders. So he was wearing he was wearing his Texas duds. And he said, Ho, ho, ho. And he greeted them and Anna was just, Oh, Santa And she said, Mommy, Mrs. Claus. And then she said, You never see her. <laughs> so Santa goes into the restaurant. And the kids are so excited. We saw Santa. He said hello to us. And then all of a sudden, Anna gets real quiet. And she starts like one foot to the other foot. And she's looking at the ground. I'm like, what is it? She said, Mommy, Santa just saw me. Yeah, he saw you. He said hello. She said, what list do you think I'm on? I was like, oh, good list, baby. Because we don't do a lot of list stuff, but good list for sure. And she's like, but you can see in her little mind, I mean, Santa knows things that even her parents might not know, you know? And so she knows that Santa knows those things. And so she's like, ooh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I really made the good list. So she starts, Santa got a table by the window. And she, like, goes over. They're eating, Santa and Mrs. Claus, trying to eat their chips. And she's like, Santa, that she has the, the world's tiniest little stalker of Santa Claus, because we're waiting for the car and people in the bathroom. Finally, we were like, Anna, let's just go in and ask, you know, kind of risky, but let's just go in and ask and see what Santa Claus says about what list you're on. So she asked him. She was hiding behind me. Um, excuse me, Santa Claus. Yes. You know, um, I was just wondering what list I'm on. And I'm there saying, turns out she's on the good list. <laughs> that was a big relief for her. But I'm sure that as Jesus made these odd choices looking into this crowd, people were thinking like Anna. Here is a man who can heal the sick, who demons have to obey. And he is calling my name. And he's calling those people's names. And I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing. Now, you don't believe me that he was making some weird choices? Well, here's the first evidence. He called a tax collector, right? Matthew was a tax collector. His name was Levi before Jesus got a hold of him. Jesus will just shake your life up, I tell you. So Jesus calls him. Now, y'all, we're like, oh, yeah, tax collector. Like an IRS agent. I mean, do y'all get like a warm fuzzy when you think of the IRS? Oh, the IRS. I love them. Wish we had more of them around. I mean, but it was worse. It was worse than just an IRS agent. I like to think of it, and I said this once in my old church, as a mashup. A mashup of an IRS agent, which you just don't have a warm fuzzy for, and a used car salesman, okay, and a personal injury lawyer. All together, in one person. And I said that one Sunday, and people laughed, and okay, they get it. And then the next Sunday, my lay reader was sitting next to me, and he leaned over and he said... Pastor Laura, yeah. are you going to bash personal injury lawyers anymore? And I was like, 
oh no, because I knew Fred was a lawyer, but I hadn't realized he was a personal injury lawyer. And so I just started digging my hole. I said, oh, Fred, um, I'm so sorry. Of course, you're not like the people I was talking about. I was, I was really talking about those personal injury lawyers who like advertise on TV during soap operas, you know, and he's like, my firm does that. <laughs> okay, well, um, gosh, I'm sorry. Okay. So um, to all of you, because I, I know there's an IRS agent or a used car salesman or personal injury lawyer out there, I'm sorry. You just People get the idea of what I'm talking about with tax collectors when I say your names um, because there was this idea of untruth about them, um, of kind of looking for the angle, right? Uh, maybe, well, definitely they, they abused people. They took advantage of them. And so add in to all of that that they were totally corrupt and dishonest, okay? They were not truthful. When you became a tax collector, they threw you out of church. Take the job, you were out on your ear out of the synagogue because you couldn't have faith in God and be a person like that is what they thought. So as soon as you were into that job, you were out of the church. And if you ever witnessed an accident or witnessed something and that tax collector was the only person who saw it, it was as if no one saw it. Because they could not be witnesses in court. Even if, you were, if the tax collector was the only one, they would not let a tax collector get up on the stand because it was assumed they were lying if their lips were moving. Okay? So Jesus is like, hmm, look at these thousands of people. I think a uh, tax collector. Okay? Odd choice. Peculiar. Um, the next person he chooses is a zealot. I always thought that sounded so good. Like they were zealous for the Lord, you know? But in fact, zealots were terrorists. That's really what they were. They didn't want, everybody wanted the kingdom of God. They weren't willing to pray and work through political process. They decided that the way the kingdom was going to come was at the point of a knife. And so they chose people to kill, to assassinate, so that God would come back. So they were thinking if we kill these people, then God's going to come. Do you see like the twisted thinking that was going on there? And then... So we have the terrorist and we have the tax collector and then we have the fisherman. Anna one time was at the zoo, at the San Antonio Zoo, and got to feed the pelicans. There was a keeper there and she was bold enough to say, can I help feed the pelicans? And he said yes. And so she got to throw fish to the pelicans. It was the coolest thing. But we paid. We paid for that. Because though she didn't like dip herself in the bat of fish, whew, we walked away from those fish and it was like they were following us home. And when we got in the car, I had to roll down the window and a reeked to high heaven so bad. I thought, well, I'll just throw it in the washing machine. That'll get it out. No. No, we washed it three times. And finally, Kevin said, give up. It's not coming out. Just throw it away. It wasn't even good enough for Goodwill. That's how much the smell of fish clings to you. This was a very entry-level profession. It took some skill. But fishermen were not, like, held up on a pedestal, and they were smelly. And so Jesus is like picking out tax collectors and um, picking out zealots and picking out fishermen. And that's the group, seriously, that he picks out of all those people. That's who he picks. Go back with me for a second to 1 Corinthians. Do you see what it says over and over and over again in here? God chose and he chose. God chose. God chose the foolish. God chose the weak. God chose the broken down and the cast aside. He chose. 
It wasn't as if Jesus looked out and he thought, oh, I'm really low on options today. Well, this will have to do. He chose those people just as they were. Now, I think as we bring this home to ourselves, no matter how much we try, we always feel a little second and irregular. And our society works hard to make us feel that way. Because if we feel that way, then we'll buy stuff, right? So advertisers to help us not feel that way. So advertisers are constantly telling us, men, when you're 63, you should have just as much hair and the same color as when you were 23, right? Some of us can live up to that ideal because we have good genes. Others, not so much. But the color, I mean, my brother's like 29 and he's graying. And it makes him feel awful. He's like, I look so Is It's because society tells us you have to have a dark, full head of hair. Women, we're supposed to have the perfect skin, right? Like even when we're 63, no wrinkles, no wrinkles show. We can look like this, right? So Just so we look like society's ideal. And when we see people wearing clothes on the runways or models, they're telling us that this is how clothes should look on you, right? If you have a body that 1% of the world has. So you always have this ideal physically that you can't live up to. So you can definitely feel like a second and irregular physically. But then we're held up these examples of, man, if you're a Christian, you should have just like the perfect family, right? I mean, your kids should be like perfect. Like, oh, stop that. Okay, mother. You know, like it's bad for pastors. I mean, we're expected to have like perfect kids and they never talk back. Well, they do. And so when they do, you feel bad. Or if your marriage, you know, is not like the perfect Christian ideal of marriage, loving all the time, never fight, just love it, then you can feel like, man, I'm just, I'm failing here. Everybody else is winning and I am failing. And when we come back to this, we come back to my little bunny, I think, and something else. I'll put the bunny up here too. We end up feeling a little bit like this when we feel like everybody else looks like this. And sometimes it's an outward thing, and sometimes it's inside of our hearts. Like we put on a good show to everybody else, but inside we feel really shabby and worn down and second and irregular. Like, man, I wish I could conquer that anger, but I just can't. Or I wish I wouldn't worry because I know that that's not a Christian thing, but I am. And so I feel like when it comes to the world of faith, I'm, I'm a second and I'm an irregular. And there's a little blanket I wanted to show you. This was sent to me by my friend when Anna was born. Um, and she said, I almost didn't send this to you, Laura. This was her first knitting project ever. First ever. Um, she said, I'm really embarrassed by it, but I made it for Anna, and I made it with love, so I thought I'd go ahead and send it. I have to give you its full glory. <laughs> now, I don't know about y'all, but sometimes I end up feeling like this blanket. This is the only blanket I got that looked like this, y'all. The only blanket I got. that had holes in the knitting and wasn't even, and, you know, it was a second, an irregular. And we can feel like this. And I want to sh show you something a little funny about um, Jesus' little brother, who probably felt like this, too. Read the Bible a lot. Found out, right, I'm reading the Bible, found out Jesus had a little brother, Anybody know his name? James. That's right. When I read that, I was like, wow. Jesus, your big brother? How much pressure was that? <laughs> How many times did he have to hear, 
How come you can't be more like Jesus, James? Because you know, everybody probably thought that James could do the same thing Jesus could do, but he couldn't. He was just James. He wasn't James Christ. Remember the wedding banquet? Jesus turned water into wine. Everybody was amazed. It was delicious. It was the best at the banquet. But they don't tell you about the next banquet. <laughs> Jesus left early. They started running out of wine. Everybody looked at James. <laughs> hey, man, last time this happened, your brother made some wine, dude. <laughs> you just going to stand there with your sandals on? You're not going to make no wine? <laughs> James probably felt a little bit like this, being Jesus' little brother. We all do. But you know what happened to James? Became a great leader in the church. Not because he was perfect or had it all together or was just like Jesus, but because God needed James. That's who God needed. God calls who he needs. And so often in life, I have people tell me, man, I'll go to God when I can get my act together and I don't look like this anymore. Don't wait. This is who God calls us. Imperfect as we are, God loves us. Jesus called the people he wanted because he saw in them hearts that would say yes. He saw past the imperfections. He saw what they could be. And the thing is that God can take our shabby imperfections, as Paul says, and make them amazing. Not make us into somebody we haven't ever been before, but make us into more of who created he created us to be, the best he created us to be. That's what God can do. The Goodwill Gang for years and decades and centuries has been putting the Neiman Marcus crowd to shame. So don't let this stop you. Don't let it stop you. When he calls your name, answer. Let's pray. God, we know that so often we see our faults just in glaring perfection. But we know that you can see those, but you also see our potential. You see our strengths. And you know that those, those faults, those imperfections can be used in amazing ways in your hands. So help us, Lord, not to say I'm not good enough. Help us to be courageous enough when you call us, when you say our name and say, come up to the mountain because things are about to change, that we are strong enough to take your hand and go. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.